Last week, we looked at the second half of chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And, and as I mentioned last week, uh, that's a parable that holds a lot of importance for me. Uh, the Lord took me on a very long journey of learning to truly forgive somebody. And, uh, and it's a hard, painful process. And in no way does the Lord minimize that as he tells the story. The truth is just presented. It's, it's given to us very clearly that unforgiveness is a torturous prison that we lock ourselves in. And, and even in the end, when he says, unless you forgive from your heart, so will my heavenly Father do to you. And that seems like, oh, he's going to punish us. He's already laid out for us the way of freedom and the way of forgiveness. And, and just says, look, if you don't do it, it's your choice, but this is the penalty for it. You're, you're going to be locked in a torturous prison. Um, and so the Lord has been dealing with some uh, difficult topics like forgiveness. And, and chapter 19, it just seems to ratchet it up even more. Uh, some difficult things. Sometimes the things that are hard to hear in the scriptures, and there are things that we listen to or we, we read, and we're like, well, it seems really black and white, but I have trouble accepting it or understanding it. And what we come to in chapter 19 are several of those examples, but the answer as well. That the answer isn't so much in the details of, is this right? Is this wrong? How do I handle this? How do I accept it? But coming back to the person of Jesus Christ. Because there's a lot of things I don't understand. There's a lot of things that I get wrong. There's a lot of ideas and opinions that, that take me off course. But if I'm able to continually come back to the person and the character of Jesus, then all of those get put into the, the right priority, right? And as we'll see today, the question that comes from Jesus in, in a little bit of a different form, but the idea is, is he good and is he God? And if those things are true then why do I fight him on so much stuff? <laughs> why do I argue with him about what he's trying to get me to understand to set me free? So let's pray, and we will get in to chapter 19. God, we again thank you for the power that's in your word. And Lord, even as we uh, prepare to cover some tough subjects about divorce and about uh, sacrifice and, and those things, Lord, we just want to tune our ears into you. Holy Spirit, have your way and teach us from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Chapter 19, starting verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a great multitude following, followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful? For a man to divorce his wife for just any reason. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, 
except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves selves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Again, tough subject. Not because Scripture isn't clear when it comes to the things of divorce, but because there are so many opinions and there are so many emotional things that, are, that we've all come across, people that we've cared about and situations that we've been in. And so as Jesus makes his way from Galilee to Judea, these, uh, first of all, there's a large group of people that follow him. He heals them, ministers to them. And as we've seen many times before, there are the religious leaders just looking for something to cause trouble about. And that's exactly what's going on here. They're not there to ask honest questions. They're not there to find out information. They're there to test him. And, and it's not even like, let's test him to see if he's the Messiah. It's the idea of test him to cause him to fail. It's to put him into the, the fire is the idea. And the question that they ask about divorce, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason, was a huge topic back in the day. And uh, we talked about this when we went, looked at Matthew 5. So we're going to be hitting some of the very same things that we looked at then. I thought about kind of just jumping over it and just telling anybody that has more questions to go back and listen to Matthew 5. But I think it's important. I think it's something that in our, in our society we need to have some answers, even just for ourselves. And there's going to be things that we just wrestle with, right? Again, it doesn't mean that every answer is going to be given to our satisfaction. But I think these are good things that for us to approach the Lord with and to get into the word about and, and wrestle with these things that we might understand them well enough to give an answer to the people that we are around. Um, I think this, the scriptures are, are, are pretty clear about it, but I think there's been a lot of bad teaching. And I think there's been a lot of one-sided teaching. Actually, it's, it's very much as it was in the day of Jesus. There are two huge extremes in Jesus' day and in our day. There are those that see marriage as being disposable. When it works, it works. When it doesn't, it doesn't, and you move on. And then there are those that are like, no, never, ever divorce under any circumstances. And there's not a lot of gray area in between. There's not a lot of middle ground that we tend to find with people. And, and that's how it was in Jesus' day. There were those in the Jewish culture. Uh, they had been the majority in the past that believed that the only reason for divorce was adultery and it had to be proven it couldn't just be a suspicion it couldn't just be jealousy there had to be absolute proof that adultery had taken place and in that case you could divorce on the other extreme and by jesus time this had actually become the more popular idea was that a man could divorce his wife for absolutely any reason at all she burned the toast done right it was to that extreme and it was used to really hold power over women. And it was only, this was a one-way street. Very, very rarely would a woman divorce 
her husband, and really what it ended up being was her just leaving. But to, to divorce, it was the husband divorcing the wife, almost always. And so it was, it was a way of holding power over them, and it was something that had become fairly common, that for any reason at all, and what they would point to is that the, the, Moses gave this allowance for divorce in the case of uncleanness. Well, what does that mean? And they had taken it as far as like, burning the toast is pretty unclean, right? She gets a little mouthy sometimes. That's uncleanness, whatever. And they would just use that as an excuse. And so this was a huge debate. It was a huge topic within the people and, and, and a lot of division. So when these Pharisees come and ask Jesus this question, again, they don't really care what his answer is. No matter what he says, he's going to alienate one side or the other of this argument. That's what they're hoping for, is to stir up trouble, to make things difficult. Um, and as I said, unfortunately, in, in our day and age, it's, it's very similar. There's those two extremes, right? I've, I've heard people changing their wedding vows from uh, until death do us part to as long as we both shall love. Well, that could be tomorrow. Done. I'm over it, right? And, and in a lot of people's eyes, marriage has seemed very disposable. So I think, first of all, we need to Again, look at it from a biblical, biblical perspective to, to understand the importance of marriage and what God intended. And that's what Jesus does as he, he answers their question. He doesn't even get into, well, this is the side that I'm on, or he does that later. He, he makes it real clear it's only for adultery. Um, but he takes them back to the beginning. Have you not read that he who made them, God in the garden, making Adam and Eve. He made them for this purpose, to be joined together, to be one flesh, to abandon all life before that, leave father and mother, all kingdoms, all loyalties, all allegiances, and become one together. It's powerful. And actually, I think the whole story of God creating Adam and showing him all the creation and all the animals and, and Adam realizing that none was made for him. It was, I just picture the Lord's heart being like, dude, I have got something <laughs> planned for you. It was all done. There's a great romance to the Lord in the way that he presents Eve to Adam. This is what you've been missing. And Adam knew it. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is what my life has been lacking, right? That's the, that's the Lord's heart, to some degree, for marriage. Not to be disposable, but to be a joining together of mind, body, soul, spirit, everything, man, into one. And it's beautiful. We know that. But again, I think too often, we live in a society and in a world that says that marriage is just a contract. It's a legal contract. And if you're committed enough, then you sign your name on the contract, there you go. Easy to make that contract, easy to break it. But so much more. God has made it to be, as I said, a physical, emotional, spiritual, supernatural event. It is a blood covenant. All of the Old Testament, whenever a blood covenant was made, and the steps, I did this study on it 
And it was amazing to look at all the different steps that were followed in the, in the different blood covenants that were made. Marriage fulfills them all. But again, even though we want to approach marriage with soberness and seriousness and a sense of awe of God's plan of it all, there are still a lot of things we look at in our world and people we know, situations we've come across, and we go, but yeah, but what about that? What about, is, is divorce okay in this situation or in that situation? Or, or what if something isn't clearly addressed? And that's kind of the question that the Jewish people would come to, and it's the same one that these guys throw out to Jesus. But um, of course, again, they lack sincerity in what they're asking. It's like, okay, we understand that, that marriage is, is beautiful and spiritual and a gift from God, but then why is there an allowance in the Old Testament for divorce? It's all these great things. <laughs> why is there the, the escape hatch given in, uh, in the Old Testament? And Jesus makes it clear, look, this is because uh, of the hardness of man's heart. But in the beginning, that's not how it was designed to be. Again, taking us back to the beginning. What was God's intention for it? Because when we get back to that, I believe it gives us great clarity on even the difficulties and trials that we face. I think the questions that naturally come up, and again, it's a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's an important one for us to go down. What about, even though Jesus says, only in the case of adultery, how about when there's mental or physical or both abuse going on in a marriage but there's not adultery. You're supposed to stick it out, put up with it, be somebody's walking mat, continue to be in a place where you're physically unsafe or maybe your children are unsafe. No. And, uh, and we'll get into how that all fits. Again, there's the two extremes. And I think there's the side that we all think about, we know about, where it's seen marriage as being disposable. But then there's the other side that I've seen to an unhealthy extreme as well, where people say there is absolutely no reason for divorce, not even adultery. And they, they will just, like, a divorce, divorce is the absolute worst. No, it's not. That over the years, Candy and I have been in ministry, we have very often been in some very tough counseling situations. And there are some of them where, honestly, we were concerned that someone involved was going to commit suicide or that somebody was going to commit murder. Those are worse than divorce. The repercussions on somebody's life and on somebody's family are worse. And so there are reasons and there are times. But again, that's not just my opinion. So I wanted to get in, and I know we looked at these when we were in Matthew 5, but I think it's important again to look at these scriptures that Paul brings out. Um, and, and you do have to understand that, first of all, I'm going to give you the scripture and I'm going to give you the context that it's in, that how and to whom Paul wrote this. And then I'll bring out the principle of it and how that applies to marriage and divorce. So in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking about when an unbeliever and a believer are married. And, and the first part of it, he says, look, if, if the unbeliever is willing to stay, then let them stay. Stay married. You have no idea what the Lord might do. Maybe the unbeliever will get saved. 
But in verse 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, he says this. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. Brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called them to peace. So this is important because if the unbeliever leaves, then the believer isn't like, okay, that's it. I'm still married forever. They're no longer under the bondage of marriage. The bond has been broken. And they're released to marry again. That's 100% or 100% out is that, that phrase that's used for under bondage. There's no gray area. Either that is working or it's not. Now, what about the case of abuse? Um, and I don't just mean not getting along, they're grumpy, we don't connect like we used to. I mean abuse. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul writes this in verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, again, the context of that, Paul is talking about taking care of the elderly. He's talking about that if somebody is older, don't make the church be the one to come in and, and meet their needs, but you be the one to take care of your family. But the principle applies, I think, even more in a marriage. That we have certain responsibilities as a husband or as a wife that are, are part of our duty. It's, what we're, it's part of our calling. And that when we neglect that purposely, and we neglect our spouse, we are not providing for those of our household. Now, not only is it the idea of just removing what our responsibility is, but if you put on top of that abuse, mental or physical or both, then I have no trouble saying that that person has denied the faith. I don't care what scriptures they use. I don't care how Christian they sound. I don't care if they're in ministry or what they might do. If that's what they're doing, they have denied the faith. Faith, They are worse than an unbeliever. And a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Now again, it's heavy duty. And it's something that's important that we understand. But I think it's something we also need to be careful about. Because I've known those people as well, that all they need is the slightest excuse, and they're running for the door. Marriage is hard. It's designed to be hard. <laughs> we live in an age that, that people are like, oh, no, it should always be romantic. It should always be this. No, I don't think so. I think God put two people together, and the idea of putting two people together means there's a lot of rough edges that need to be broken off. It's hard. And it's only in our, our like modern Western civilization that we like put all this romance and all these other things. And those are great. Don't get me wrong. Those are great. But, you know, like 200 years ago, the whole wedding recording process was like, you seem like a sturdy gal that could survive the prairie. Let's get married, right? <laughs> and she's like, I can survive the prairie. Let's do it, you know? And it was in the process that hopefully they fell in love, but that's not where it began. I think too often we, we get our emotions leading us when instead, first of all, it must be the Word of God. And that those who approach marriage 
with the right understanding of God's intent for it. God's design for it. How it was meant to be in the beginning. With a soberness. With a seriousness. And understanding that, that marriage is a ministry. That, man, it's powerful. But, man, we have to be careful not to take it lightly. And if we're in it, then we want to be in it to win it. We want to be in it to show the world what God can do through two broken sinners brought together. There is no greater picture in all of the world of the Lord and His church than marriage. It is used over and over again. And that is the goal, I believe, the ultimate purpose of marriage is to be that picture to the world. Now, it's also interesting that the disciples understand the intensity of what Jesus is saying. Because their response is, yeah, that's the way it is. We shouldn't get married. I mean, that's pretty intense. And Jesus then goes on to kind of springboard to his next topic from that, of that, yeah, you need to consider that. These guys that are, that are going into ministry, that are in ministry with Jesus. Now, Peter was married and continued to be married, uh, but not all of the guys were. And so he addresses the idea of if God calls you to be single, if God calls you to singleness. In verse 11, he says, And he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. That's really important. Anytime that I've, I've talked with single people about Jesus calling some to singleness, there's like this blind panic. <laughs> what if that's me? What if I'm called to be single? I don't think I can take it. <laughs> they start freaking out. You go, whoa, 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 whoa. Only to those to whom it has been given. Jesus was single. Paul the Apostle, single. And they were called to it. And Paul talks about it. He goes, hey, I wish everyone was like me, unmarried, because then you can focus on the ministry. It didn't bother him. And I have met some people that they are called to singleness. It doesn't bother them. They're fine with it. They're serving the Lord. They're, they're doing things for him. And they're not looking to be married because they, they see the value in singleness. And if you don't, then you're probably not called to it, right? It's, it's pretty simple. And it comes down to, what are you called to? What is God's calling upon your life? If you're called to be single, you're going to be okay with that calling. That to those who delight themselves in the Lord, He gives you the desires of your heart. Which means, not what we think, that we get to do whatever we want. It means that if we delight ourselves in Him, and His calling upon our life, He will take His desires and place them in our heart. And we'll find it's exactly what we've always wanted. He doesn't call us to be miserable. He, but he does have a great calling upon our life. And on our singleness or on our marriage. Either way, it is a powerful calling. All right, verse 13. It says, Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them, and Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hand on them, and they departed from there. Now behold, one came and said to him, 
Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And so he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You should not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, said to him if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. To me, this is such a heartbreaking story. (laughs) Now, first, we get this great, upbeat picture of Jesus with these little children. And and again, I I think they're given to us by Matthew because there's this great contrast here. Um, I guess to paint the whole scene, we got to remember what's going on. Jesus is in this conflict with the religious leaders. He's unloading this deep truth. It's super heavy. And so it's kind of this tense scene. And then apparently, at that same moment, these parents come up to Jesus and are like, hey, could you pray for my kid? And the disciples are like, what? You know, we're kind of in the middle of something right here. I think we get the wrong idea of what the disciples are doing. Like they're just these big meanies that don't want kids around. They're really kind of like, this is not the right time. A little inappropriate for the parents to show up here. But it wasn't unheard of. It was pretty common for parents to bring their children to a rabbi and just ask for a blessing to be pronounced on them. And, and that's what these parents are doing. Um, and even though he's in this, you know, kind of debate with the, with the Pharisees and this heavy discussion of, of you know, whether you're going to be married or not married, he's like, no, no, there, there's always time for these kids. And I love that. It's such a great picture of the heart of the Lord. Like, no, don't send them away. Bring them to me. Let the little children come to me. I, I, I think that's probably the greatest thing that we can do as a church is be pouring in to our kids, that we would be bringing them to Jesus. And we are. Like I mentioned earlier, the Sunday school teachers here are amazing. I love after church coming out and talking with the kids and what you guys do today? And they drew a picture and they learned a verse and they sometimes sing a song or whatever they did. And they, they're stoked. And I have people that, you know, they come here and they visit for the first time and they're like, my kid won't stop talking about Sunday school. They had such a good time. And I love to hear that. Again, not that we're out to entertain. We're out to bring them to Jesus. We want them to know how much the Lord loves them, what a great plan he has for their life. And and so I I think that that's one of the greatest things that we can be doing as a church is to continue to, to pour in to the kids, but I think there is this direct contrast uh, between the scene with the children and this rich young ruler. Jesus in Matthew 18 puts a child in the midst of the disciples and says, You need to be like them. You need to be converted. You need to be changed. Your priority structure, everything you think, needs to be more like a child because they trust, because they have faith, because They have humility. And that's what specifically Jesus pointed out. That we need to humble ourselves. So once again, he says, such is the kingdom of heaven. 
that without that faith, none of us come to Jesus. Without that humility, none of us admit our wrong and ask for forgiveness. And then this guy comes along. Now, if you look at what the other Gospels say, we find out this guy is rich, he's young, he's powerful, he's a ruler. This guy has everything going his way. And he's spiritually minded. The, the fact that he would even come to Jesus and ask this question shows that he's concerned. He's not just trying to make himself look good because he's very honest about that he is lacking something. He's got everything. Power, money, he's young. I'm going to guess that he's probably handsome, right? Why not? Throw that in there. Yet he comes to Jesus and says, what do I lack? How do I get eternal life? He just knew he didn't have it. So he's spiritually minded. He wants to know the things of God. And, and he calls Jesus good. He's a good teacher. Jesus' response is interesting because he says, Why do you call me good when no one is good except for one, God? It is not that Jesus is denying his goodness. He's not saying, Oh, don't call me good. It's not some false humility. Jesus is presenting a question to him that he has to answer before Jesus gives him the answer that he really needs, right? This guy has to make a decision on who Jesus is. Because basically, and again, this would have been clearer when Jesus spoke it to him. He understood what Jesus was saying. We lose it a little bit in the translation. But Jesus is basically telling him, look, either I'm good or I'm not. You need to make up your mind. And if I'm good, then you're also saying, I'm God, or I'm not. And if you can't come to that conclusion, you won't accept what I have to tell you. Jesus says, first of all, keep the commandments. And he goes, well, uh, which ones? And it's interesting I don't really have an answer for this. I just find it interesting. Jesus gives him the commandments that deal with our relationship with other people. Right? Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Love your neighbor. He does not address or mention any of the commandments to deal with our relationship with God. Not bowing down to idols or any of those things. And this guy says, I've kept all those. That's a pretty bold statement. And Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't go, you liar. <laughs> no, you didn't. You haven't kept those. Jesus is like, okay. And that's when he says, so then what do I lack? What am I missing? Again, I think there's a real honesty about what this guy is saying, but there's also this heartbreak with the whole scene as Jesus now gives him the real answer that he needs. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. You know how few people got that invitation? You know, I think about Legion, who had all those demons cast out of him, and he begged Jesus to let him follow him. And Jesus says, no, go to your family. And here's this young guy who's got all this stuff, and Jesus goes, go get rid of all of those worldly possessions, and you follow me. A 13th disciple could have been right here. But because he could not let go of that worldly treasure, he went away sad, and we never hear from him ever again. It would have worked, though. He would have made it work. Either way. The invitation went out, 
and he did not receive it. Again, it's heartbreaking. I think it is a great picture of God's good plan when we, do, when we choose not to fit into it. Look, here's what I've got for you. Here's what's holding you back. Go get rid of all of that, and you come and follow me. And we go, I don't know. I'll get back to you. Heartbreaking. Now again, from here, verse 23 And then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, and said to them, With God this is impossible Excuse me, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then Peter answered and said to him, We have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? And so Jesus said to him, said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left house or brother or sister, or father or mother or wife or children or land for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, Jesus, speaking of this rich young ruler, points to all people, you know, that are... that have wealth and, and say it's hard it's hard and i think that's one of those things that we <laughs> we don't relate with that well right because we look at ourselves and we compare ourselves to you know the wealth of, of the one percent or the bill gates of the world and we go well that's not us i don't have worldly wealth that, that holds me back but we don't compare ourselves to say the people that live in haiti and realize we actually are the 1% compared to the rest of the world. And, and if we're honest, how easy it is for things of this world, our comfort, finances, whatever it might be, we know that they can just start luring us away and drawing us away. And it's hard, especially when it comes to laying them down for the sake of the kingdom. In verse 24, he says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And there's a, a, there's a story out there, it's been around for years, that in the city gates of Jerusalem, there was a door just big enough for a man to go through. And when, that door, when those doors were closed at nighttime, if somebody showed up late and wanted to get into the city, they would have to unpack their camel and take everything through and then get their camel down on its knees and then shove it through that door. And that... People would say, that's what Jesus is referring to. That's not true at all. <laughs> there is no historical record of that door. Jesus meant a literal camel and a literal needle. And even though the, the tour guides in Jerusalem will still tell that story when they take you to the city gates of Jerusalem, 
There's no historical fact to it. And honestly, if that were what Jesus is referring to, the disciples would not have been shocked. Oh, you're saying it's hard, but it's not impossible. A little extra work, you get them through there, no worries. But instead, they're like, who can be saved? They're blown away. They understand that Jesus is saying, no, you just got to grind that camel up fine enough to get him through the eye of that needle. And they're like, that's impossible. How, is it, how could it, it do, ever happen? That's the point. With man, it is impossible. It's not just extra work. It's not hard. It's not inconvenient. It's impossible. And really, the things that Jesus has been talking about from chapter 18 through chapter 19, these things are impossible with men. Forgiveness, purity, marriage, faith. They're impossible in our own strength. It's like trying to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. There's no way we can do it. Even if we could do a little bit of it on our own, we can't do all of it. But with God, all of it is possible. And again, I think about the rich young ruler that we're taking the same place. And that might be in our marriage. It might be in, in the issue of forgiveness. It might be in, in raising our kids or dealing with people in our community. I don't know what it is for you. But whatever it is, God takes us to this point and goes, look, here's how I want to set you free. Go get rid of those things. Go get rid of the bitterness that's holding you back by forgiving that person. Go fulfill the duties of, of your marriage. Stop going in those areas of temptation, whatever it might be, and then come and follow me. And how often we argue with him. Man, he wants to set us free. And with God, all of these things are possible. He is inviting us to follow. He is inviting us to be set free. And the question we need to answer is that if he is in fact God and he is good, then why don't we follow? Man, why aren't we just dumping these weights as fast as we can and chasing after him with all we got? And that's my prayer, that this next year we would do even more of that than we ever have individually and as a church, that we would be those who go, you know what, Lord, this is the year I want to get set free from these things. This is the year I want you to shine through my life like never before. I want to share the gospel with the people that I'm around in a loving way that makes sense to them. I want to follow you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love, for your constant pursuing of us, that we would be those that fall more in love with you and that follow you to an even greater degree. Help us to cast off the weights that hold us back and to run the race with perseverance that's ahead of us. For your glory and in your name, amen.